Well, good evening. There's not a lot of space back here. It's kind of nerve-wracking. I was telling them earlier. <clears throat> a lot of the messages we've been uh, hearing from the Word and that have been preached by our brothers the past couple of weeks, messages on revival, uh, messages on what we uh, see in the Scripture as far as how we are to be acting, how we are to be treating one another, uh, how we are to fellowship with one another. And I think we all wonder at the practicality, and we would like some examples of what that looks like. And me being a really young guy, I don't have any life experience to bestow upon you in that. But uh, we are going to learn from the scriptures, and we are going to search the scriptures this evening uh, to see what the Spirit would have us learn on how to come together as a, a body, a true body, in fellowship, uh, as an example and, and as a light for Jesus Christ in this community, that when people walk in here, we've heard that if people were to walk in here, would they fall down on their face and say that God is clearly among them? We've never had it happen, uh, but uh, Lord willing, one day we will. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look on this idea of, of unity, and we're going to look at it unity through humility. We're just going to take the first four verses uh, to start. We will get through the entire uh, chapter of uh, Philippians 2, Lord willing. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 1 reads, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So in these first couple verses, and I'm going to have to undo this tie a little bit. It's really hot up here. Excuse me. I apologize. <clears throat> oh, maybe it's the beard. I'm not sure. But... Uh, so th these first four verses, what it is, is uh, it's almost like the, the Holy Spirit is setting a standard. This is what you're supposed to be like. Since, and the, the, the way it's phrased in the King James is, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ. Really, you can translate that if as since. Since there, are since there is consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit. Because if you were to present these things, um, is there consolation in Christ? Is there love in Christ? Well, yes, there is. Is there a comfort in that love? Is that love of Christ comforting? Yes, it's comforting. Is there a fellowship of the Spirit? Are we all of the same Spirit? Yes, we're all the same Spirit. Um, bowels and mercies is really like compassions and affections. Are there compassions and affections? Yes. So the idea here is that since these things exist, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. So we are to be like-minded. We are to have the same love. We are to be of one accord, of one mind. That's the goal. That's what we're after. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to, to make us understand. And it says, in order for this to be done, it says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Strife is uh, in a group of people, politically. You know, you'd have strife and discord, a group of people trying to exert themselves or above another. 
and you have vain glory, an individual going for uh, conceit or recognition on his own, on his own merit. So you have both as a group and as an individual, strive for vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So this is, this is the trick. Now we have a race to the bottom. Who can get there the fastest? If I'm esteeming you as higher than me and you're esteeming me as higher than you, then we're just going to be racing all the way down to the bottom to see who could get there quicker. Is that what the world teaches? No. That's not what the world teaches. Is that what our nature as an individual wants to do? Not at all. Let me tell you, we play a game. Don't let me play. I've warned everyone in this chapel. I'm very, very competitive, and I play to win. And that's the attitude we have. It's we're, we're going after, uh, number one, we want victory. We, we want recognition. We want to succeed. And we want everyone to see us succeed. Um, we like pats on the back. We like uh, comforting, good job, way to go. And those are all good things, but the idea is to have a lowliness of mind, to esteem each other as better than ourselves. So the question that comes into our minds, and Paul's really brilliant at this, and it's the Holy Spirit working through him, is he'll present a standard, and then he'll give an example, and then he'll give even like a little bit, like almost like lesser examples. Like you're going to work your way back up, and this is the goal. Remember the goal we talked about? These are the examples I'm showing you. And that's exactly what we have here. Because Paul's going to take it from the goal, what we're after. He's going to show us the example, the perfect example in Christ. And then he displays himself, he displays Timothy, and he displays Epaphroditus. All in a measure of humility and service. So we're able to get a full gamut of what we are to be to one another. How we are to act um, with one another. So it says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What are our needs? What are the things that we desire? Um, for some, it's, it's teaching. For some, it's, hey, I, you know, I'm laying sod on Tuesday. I need some help laying sod. Um, for others, it's, you know, I need a ride. Simple things. But what are our needs? I don't know. I know a couple of yours. I don't know many of your needs. Um, if we knew each other intimately, if we were esteeming each other better than ourselves, and if we were in and out of each other's lives, I would know what your needs are. And I would have a desire to fulfill your needs. That's the way this Christian life is supposed to go. The Christian life is a life of giving, is a life of service. Um, it's not a life of, of, of getting, even though we get everything. We've been seated and given all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, but yet we are to be an example to the world of what Christ is like, who God is. And in that, we are to give of ourselves. We are to um, have this mind in us. So what's interesting is... He's breaking down the goal. And what's interesting in the letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Philippians is really a thank you letter that Paul is writing back to the saints because they've sent him some fellowship money. They've met his need in some way. And so Paul, getting this message from Epaphroditus, um, pens this letter of thanks to the Philippians. And we notice that this letter is different than the others. In the letter to the Galatians, there's a, a great deal of correction it's a great example of, of grace versus law. 
and that um, you know it's without works that salvation is by faith alone. That's what Galatians is going to teach. Ephesians has corrections on, you know, you too as Jew and Gentile have become one. There's doctrinal correction. Correction In Philippians, we don't really have a doctrinal correction. But Paul very astutely senses that there's a problem in Philippi. It's a small problem right now, so it seems. But it's one that can grow into a large one. And it's a problem of disunity. People were starting to see themselves in the church maybe as, well, we're the core group of the church, and all these other people are what we like to call tagalongs. You know, they come in and they, they hear the word and then they leave, but we're the core group. Well, what does that create? It creates a disunity. It's an us and it's a them. Um, there is not that unity of we're all sharing together. We're all um, part of the body, equal members. And so Paul's writing this letter that they need to come together. And how are they going to come together? And it's going to be done through humility. Because what happen, what's happening right now is they're starting to exalt themselves amongst one another. And so the interesting thing is, what does, what does Paul use, what does the Spirit of God use to bring them together? To say, okay, if, if we're going to be unified, what's something that will draw us together? And the answer is actually in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 27, it's going to read, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake." having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, we are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. It is the one thing that all believers will agree upon. Because if you don't agree on the gospel, one of you is not a believer. You have to agree on the gospel because the gospel is the same. That Christ came, Christ shed his blood, he died on the cross, he was buried, he rose again, and that death, that blood that was shed, paid for the sins of the world. And by faith alone in him, accepting his work in your place as substitutionary death, you'll be born again and have eternal life. He gives it to you. It's by grace alone. You disagree on that, and you, you don't have fellowship because you don't agree on the core thing. You can have different feelings on um, um, rapture, prophecy, you could have different opinions on interpretation of scripture. But the one thing that they're going to strive together with is faith of the gospel. Because the gospel has to go out. And so he encourages them that they stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together. And so this is what he's, he's laying out. How are we going to do this? Well, how you're going to do this is the points we've talked about. To esteem each other better than themselves. Lowliness of mind. Well, what does that look like? Because that's often the question we ask. What's it, what's it made out of? What would it look like to see somebody else doing that? And so what we have here is an interesting um, way that Paul does this. Because this is a picture, really, what Paul is teaching is humility. But what we have because of Paul's teaching is this perfect representation of how far Christ came from heaven. How low he made himself for us in our place. 
So in verse 5, we, have, we would have that question. So what does this look like? Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We often read these verses <clears throat> in a way to typify the humility of the Lord and his coming down from, from heaven, making himself a man. And we, we pause and we just marvel at that. I mean, just let those verses sink in how low the Savior came. And what it should do is it should encourage us to be like him. If he loved us so much, made himself this low, can't we do the same for one another? If he esteemed us that way, do we not esteem one another that way? And that's really the point that Paul's trying to get at. This is the perfect example of what this is supposed to look like. And the example is Christ. So it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Uh, in other verses, it might say, um, considered equality with God, not a thing to be grasped. Um, what it's really saying is that God the Father and God the Son are equal. They had equal position. But Christ didn't consider that equality with God a thing for him to just cling on to and hold on to and not let it go. That wasn't his attitude. His mind was he saw us in our state and he made himself of no reputation. <clears throat> not that he was no longer God, but as fully God, fully capable, robed himself in flesh and came and was born in a manger. And the picture is, the idea is, he came all the way down, born as a babe, fully dependent, not only on his father, but on his mother here. So he didn't consider the things that he had something that he was going to hold on to and not let go. He was willing to let go. He was willing to come down. <clears throat> he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And we've heard this before. When they looked at the Lord Jesus, even when he was older, they said, is this not the carpenter's son who speaks these things? Isn't this just the man of Galilee uh, from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth? There was nothing in him that shouted the glory of God. He had veiled it. He had made himself of no reputation. <clears throat> and being found in fashion as a man... So he was found in a fashion of man. So he's been coming down, coming down, coming down. Being found as a fa in the fashion of a man means they saw him in the fashion of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We know that the wages of sin is death. And we get our due reward because of our sin. And we know that Christ did not sin. So Christ had to become obedient unto death. He had to freely give his life of himself for us. 
make, offer himself up as the sacrifice in our place. It wasn't something that uh, he was forced to do. But he, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death. Not only did he give up his life, but the death of the cross. He became a curse for us. For the word of God says, Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. And so we have this beautiful picture of what the Lord has done for us. And oftentimes we stop there and we just marvel. And, and we're, we're taken aback and we think, what a wonderful Savior that we have. It fills our hearts with joy. And then 10 minutes later, <laughs> we're yelling at somebody because they didn't do what we wanted them to do. And really, the effect should be something that sinks in our hearts. And that mind that was in Christ Jesus should be flowing out of us. Are we letting it flow out of us? Are we aware that that's what we should be doing? Do we have this attitude within us? So this is the example that we have of Christ making himself humble. All the way down to the bottom. Our minds would think, if I didn't look out for my own interest, who would look out for my interest? I would just end up with nothing. I would be helping everyone else and I wouldn't get anything. And that's sometimes our attitude. But the beauty of it is, if we trust the word of God, we don't have to worry about that. Because if we're looking out for the interests of others, for, for Christ's interests in each of us, the Father will take care of us. Now the question is, do we really believe that? We see that the Lord did. Because what the Lord did, it says, he humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, because of, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, for what? To the glory of God the Father. Okay? So what we have here is an example of Christ making himself of no reputation, humbling himself, and then God the Father exalting him. And if we too humble ourselves, our Father in heaven will exalt us. It won't look like what you think it's supposed to look like, but just trust it. It'll happen. You'll have rewards in heaven. You'll have at the judgment seat stuff that will not burn up, precious stones, gold, not wood, hay, and stubble. But we have to take him at his word, continue to humble ourselves. There is an instance that the scripture teaches where God the Father humbles you. It's not the same thing. Uh, when God the Father humbles you, uh, that's uh, not a good thing, okay? The goal is to humble ourselves. Um, it is a, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is the idea here. This is the perfect example. We have the standard, what, what it's supposed to be. We have the perfect example in Christ. <clears throat> and Paul's going to continue. It says, wherefore, in verse 12, wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, 
that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. <clears throat> so really what's going on here is, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed. Paul speaks of the Philippian saints in a very, very loving tone. Paul longs to be with the Philippian church, and he's, he desires to get back to them. Um, but right now we believe that Paul is in prison, wanting to be released to return to the Philippians. <clears throat> but at the time, he cannot go. And so he says, You have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, this is a passage on humility. A lot of times people will take these passages and preach salvation. This is not a passage on salvation. This is a passage on humility. And if we understand the context of the passage, we won't be led astray with every wind of doctrine that comes our way. We'll be mature. We'll be able to stand firm in what we know and what we believe. And that's why it's so important that when we do take the scripture and when we do open the scripture, we are teaching it in context. So right now, he's talking about humility. He's talking about obedience. And it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So would he be talking about all these things and say, and remember, you've got to work for your salvation after he just went over all the things that Christ did for them? No. What he's doing is he's saying, you have to work it out. It should be evident in your life. It should be something, because it's in you, it should be working out of you. Um, everyone here knows who Usain Bolt is, I assume. Olympic, fast man in the world, right? Usain Bolt. I'll never be as fast as Usain Bolt, unfortunately, because I don't have in me the ability it takes to run like Usain Bolt. I can't work that out of me. There's nothing I can do. I'm physically incapable of being that fast. But Usain Bolt has it in him, and he's able to work out, and that's what comes out. We are to do the same thing. We have been saved. If you have trusted Christ as Savior, you indeed have the Spirit in you, and Christ himself dwells within you. And if Christ himself dwells within you, that's what should be working out in your everyday life. If it's not working out in your everyday life, that's when you take the time to see why. Why is it not working out in my everyday life? Am I, am I not in the Scripture? Am I, am I not even thinking of what the Lord would have me to do? And a lot of times what we find is if the Lord is not present openly in our lives... It's because we have been, at that moment, very, very prideful, seeking our own things. And we have not esteemed what the Lord would have us to do. We have not esteemed what the needs of the saints are, and we're out for our own gain. And being out for our own gain is not an example of Christ. So how can we feel close to the Lord when we're not living like he lived? We can't. So what this is, is this is an encouragement that you have obeyed. Not only in my presence, but even when I've been absent. Now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God's going to give you the will and the ability to do this work of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. <clears throat> That's a troublesome verse. Uh, Brother Ben Eiler back there, I asked him uh, how he was doing one day. And he responded, I can't complain, though I am familiar with the art of it. <laughs> I, 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 was a, I was a big fan of that comeback. I'm very familiar with the art of complaining. 
and murmuring and disputing. And that's the danger that we have. Our nature is to complain. When I was a kid growing up, we have a gentleman that works with us, not directly anymore, but indirectly. Uh, we helped him get his, his contractor's license about six years ago. <clears throat> when he first started, he was a 17-year-old uh, from Mexico, didn't know any English, and he was the gardener for my, my mom and dad. I was about a year old, and um, he's just one of the best workers I've ever known. And he's worked with us ever since. And now he's, uh, you know, got five kids. One of them's married, about to be a grandpa. And um, I worked with him for six or seven years in my teens in the summertime. And then in winter break and things like that when I had time off. And I'll never forget in the winter, you'd wake up and it would be really early and it would be cold. And you'd be digging in the mud because a, a main would break. And we did irrigation repair. And so we'd go out and we'd fix these mains for these uh, sports parks. And sometimes the sports parks would be, uh, they'd have mains that were six feet below the ground. <clears throat> and so you had to dig, and you had to dig a long time. And when you got there in the morning, if you said, oh, it, it's cold out here, he would hand you a shovel and say, here, it'll warm you up. <laughs> and so now every time somebody says, it's cold, I'd look for Rogelio to come and hand him a shovel and say, here, this will warm you up. And that's the idea here murmuring and disputing, it doesn't accomplish anything. It, it, it's, it's, it's really useless. Um, there's a difference between um, murmuring and correction. Um, murmuring is normally just a, a constant state, it seems like. No matter what happens, the murmuring continues. Uh, and the picture really is the children of Israel in the wilderness. Um, God brings them out of bondage you know, they complain. God gives them the law, says he's going to fellowship and dwell with them, and they complain. They're in the wilderness, he gives them manna from heaven, they complain. He gives them quail, they complain. And the whole picture of just, it's a, it's a constant state, this murmuring and disputing. And we see they wander for, for 40 years. Um, are we wandering? <laughs> That's a, it's a scary thought when you think about it. What, is, what are we supposed to be doing here? Because we know, we, and the, the hard part is we know that one day we will stand before our Lord and Savior. He'll be there and at the judgment seat, and he'll say, okay, we're going to go over your entire life. Uh, don't worry about time. We're not in time anymore. Uh, go ahead and tell it to me, everything you've, you've done for me. We will one day have to have that conversation. In light of that, are we wandering right now? Are we just murmuring? We've, we've gone over what the Lord's done for us. We remembered him this morning, the great gift of salvation that we have, the love of a Savior that will never fail, the promise, the hope of his coming, that we will dwell with him for all eternity, that there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more crying. What's that conversation going to be like? Murmurings and disputings. It says, do all things without it, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're not to just, uh, you know, sometimes we, we go to Yosemite or we go to a conference, and it's all believers. I was at the Galilee program, 
And for three weeks, I mean, we were basically, it was almost like being in prison because we didn't leave this building. We were just in this building the whole time. And it's like you go out and see sunlight, and it's like, what's that, you know? But we were amongst believers the whole time. Nobody ever fought. There was never an, an argument. Nobody yelled. No disagreements. No scuffles. No, everyone here, can I do this for you? Can I get you a cup of coffee? Uh, I'm getting a water. You want a water? Yeah, you know. And you think, man, it would be nice if it was just like this all the time. You know what I mean? We'll just we'll all we'll, we'll take our money, we'll pull, we'll invest, we'll get this little thing out here, and then we'll just, you know, work the land and stuff like that. And I'm like, amen. You know, we're all for it. But that's not that's not the, that's not what we're supposed to do. Why? Because that's not what the Lord did. The Lord there was seated in heaven, glory, perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Didn't need us. Didn't need anything. Had it all but yet saw us in our state and humbled himself. So when our attitude is, when we come here and we have this, this wonderful fellowship with one another and we're just built up and we, just, we, we, we get into the word and we, we think about our Savior and just how lucky we are and we stand back and we're just amazed at how a God in heaven would care so much to give his only begotten son for us. And we forget that he also gave them for all of the people. And we go out in the, in the world, and instead of seeing the people as Christ sees them, instead of letting that mind be in us that was in Christ, our pride gets in the way. And we don't esteem them as better than us. And I know we don't. And you know we don't. Because we're all still here. <laughs> We all have nice houses. We all have nice cars. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But when was the last time you really saw a lost person? You thought you esteemed them higher than yourself. And you thought, no matter what, I am going to give that person the gospel today. Out of love. Whatever money I got in my pocket, they can have. Whatever, whatever, the, whatever I got right now, they can have it. We don't, we don't necessarily walk around with that attitude. But this is the idea that we would be blameless, that we would be harmless... <clears throat> in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, we're to be shining as lights. Verse 16, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So what's Paul really worried about here? Paul's worried about when he gets to the judgment seat and he has to have that conversation. And this, this portion comes up in his work in Philippi. And the Lord says, they just went the way of the world. And all that time you spent laboring with them, it didn't work out. They turned away. Paul's afraid of that. And because Paul's afraid of that, and because Paul is concerned for the saints at Philippi, he's encouraging them, don't let this happen. You know, um, hold forth the word of life. And Paul says, And if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all for the same cause. Also do you joy and rejoice with me. And really what that is is a picture of that he be offered like a drink offering on their burnt offering. So you have the burnt offering, which is the real sacrifice that is presented to God the Father. And Paul says, even if I'm just a drink offering poured out, once, once that wine hits that, it's just a sweet savor. It just goes up. And so what this is, is this is an example of Paul in sacrifice for the saints at Philippi. 
Paul is willing to be a sacrifice to, to suffer in prison, to go through what he's going to go through, and in his mind, thinking to be killed, that the gospel would go out, that you would be encouraged, that you would go on for the Lord, that you would not fall away. And that's the example we have. We are to, in a way, be ready to sacrifice what we have in the place of another. And what we have here in this next section is an example of that in Timothy and Epaphroditus. So we have the Lord as the perfect example. We have Paul as an example in sacrifice. In verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the father he hath served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. What we have here in Timothy is an example of service. Out of everything Paul's been through, all the people that Paul's met, all the people in a way that Paul has discipled, he says, I have no man like-minded who will naturally or genuinely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. That just blows me away. Uh, out of all the people Paul knew and was in fellowship with, he knew only one person that was like-minded that he could send, that he knew for sure, if I send you, you will genuinely care for those people. In a way, we're shocked by it, but when we really think about it, we're not shocked by it. Um, it would be a very difficult thing to go and be a young man and have to kind of work your way through the, the, the dealings in the assembly. But Paul knew that Timothy would genuinely care for the saints and he would serve among them. <clears throat> and it wasn't in a sense for Timothy, what am I going to get out of it? Um, he didn't have that attitude. He was concerned with the state of the believers in Philippi. And he knows he can send them, and the Philippians know that they'll receive him because they've seen him labor with Paul, and they've seen his character with their own, with their own eyes. And so he's going to send Timothy, an example to us of service. And in verse 25, it says, Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again ye may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. And so what we have here, if I was listening to this letter and Paul was giving an example of Jesus Christ, of himself, of Timothy, I'd say, yeah, but you guys are, you know, Jesus Christ in the league of his own. Paul and Timothy, you know, we're not quite at that level here. You know, we're just regular people. You know, what about us? What are we really going to do? What does that really look like? And so he says, okay, I'm Epaphroditus. He was one of the Philippian church. He was the one that was given the task to bring the, the gift to Paul. 
It was quite a journey from Philippi to Rome. And so <clears throat> along this journey, Epaphroditus gets sick. And either that there was something lacking in the service of the Philippians, either that being uh, the willingness to, to come and deliver the gift, or the fact that he got there and Paul needed more things, and Epaphroditus went out and worked for it. Uh, we're not exactly sure uh, the character of Epaphroditus and what that really was. could be one of the two. Either way, he provided. He made it happen. And this idea that he was willing to come even unto death just to give Paul what he needed, a guy that was in prison. Um, and that's really the example of, of, of a guy willing to do that even, even when suffering, um, humility and suffering. And the interesting thing is when, this, when he hears that the saints in Philippi know that he's sick, it doesn't exalt him. It actually depresses him because now he's worried that they're worried about him. And he's got to get back because he's got to tell them, no, I'm okay, you know, everything's good. Don't worry about me. Um, our attitude would be like, yeah, you know, it was a really long trip down to, down to Rome and just got sick and almost died, you know, and oh, man. But it was all for you guys, you know, I did it for you. Um, so what are you going to give me now in return? We see that that wasn't his attitude. Um, he was willing to, to suffer. And the interesting thing is that in this act, Paul, Paul exalts him. And in verse 25, it says, My brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier for the strength of the gospel. Remember, this whole picture is that we strive towards the gospel, faith in the gospel. So we have this example of humility. Humility bringing about this unity and this being of one mind, being like-minded, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're not to be unified just to be unified. Um, we're not to be unified to, to vote one way in politics. We're not to be unified to, to have an opinion on uh, pop culture. Uh, none of those things matter. We're here to be unified for the faith of the gospel, that Christ would go out, that we would be lights in the world, that we would humble ourselves and serve one another, esteem others better than ourselves. This is the example that Paul is giving to the church in Philippi. This is the example we have when we wonder why doesn't our church look like the church in the New Testament? What are we missing? And I think this is one of these things. Humility. We need it. <laughs> We're missing it. Um, we need it for each other. We need it for the lost. We need it for the Lord's sake. Um, it would, it's a scary thought, but really think about it. Um, do we esteem the Lord as better than ourselves? Think about what he had. Think about what he did for us. Think about what he's asked us to do. And when we hear what he's asked us to do, what do we do? If we don't do it, then we are not esteeming him as better than we are. So that's really what this whole passage is about. This whole passage is about getting them to be unified in humility for the faith of the gospel to go out, that they would strive together. And it's really an encouraging thing. They didn't have this, uh, this disputes in doctrine. They didn't have these corrections being handed down. Paul was not disciplining them in any way. It was simply, okay, what we, what we got from this letter was this beautiful picture of our Savior and how he was willing 
not to just hold on to his position in heaven, but to come down, to be born as a babe in a manger, to live a life as a man that wasn't recognized as anything. And then for them to recognize him and to see him and then to crucify him. To be killed, to be buried, and God the Father highly exalted him. That's what we're after. We're after this idea. It's a race to the bottom, guys. He who is great in in the kingdom of God is servant of all. We are to seek to serve one another. Yeah, so that's what I have for us tonight. Um, The goal, hopefully, will be that we'll continue through maybe this portion as I continue to speak. Maybe um, we'll pick it up in chapter 3 next time. But to follow this passage as far as what it means to be striving together, what it means to be pressing towards the mark of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Right now we have the example of of Christ and what he has done and what we are supposed to do, and it will continue that we press towards the mark. Um, So we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just come before thee um, truly thankful this evening, truly thankful that uh, you indeed are our Father. And we remember that you are our Father because of your Son, the work that he has done on the cross in our place, that he was willing to come, that he was made of no reputation, that he humbled himself, Father, and came down from heaven and indeed was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And Father, we praise him this morning because we know that uh, he has been exalted, that he is seated at your right hand. And Father, we long to live for him who gave us everything that we have. May we learn to esteem one another as better than ourselves. May we let the mind of Christ dwell within us, that indeed we would work out our own salvation with fear and with trembling. Father, that we would shine as lights in the world, that souls would be saved and souls would be built up for Christ. We just ask a blessing upon all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.